Well, this morning we come together to the story of Easter. And I want to welcome you to reach out and take hold of one of the pew Bibles that you have uh, in front of you or in your own copy of the scriptures and to turn with me to Matthew 28. We're going to read this text first together and then I'm going to page over and and read a few verses from John, the Gospel according to John. Uh, In the Pew Bibles, the reading can be found on page 1549, 1549. And let's read together responsively just the first 10 verses here, shall we? Uh, Let's proclaim to the world and hear for ourselves the word of the Lord. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And apparently the women did just this. They went back, they told the other disciples that Jesus would meet them in Galilee. And they traveled north from the city of Jerusalem, where they had been hiding, uh, fearing that the same fate might awake them that had come upon Jesus. And they traveled up to Galilee and resumed their work as fishermen. And it was there that Jesus, one morning, appeared to them on the shoreline and invited them to come in from their boats. And they came in, and Jesus prepared them breakfast. He prepared them that Easter brunch I've reflected on before. And um, there must have been joy at the reunion. Uh, Hard to even describe the joy, the surprise, the amazement at that reunion. But I can't help but think there was also a certain darker feeling running through at least one of those disciples, maybe more than one. Peter, for sure, Peter, for sure, must have felt some shame. For he had had made such bold promises (laughs) about how It was a turning point for him. He was totally committed to Jesus. Uh, Totally committed. And yet he had not been able to maintain the commitment. Yet Jesus, here in this wonderful story in John chapter 1, shows Peter that God is not done with him. Not done with using him. And he reinstates him in these words. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me 
more than these. In other words, you love me more than these other people do. And this is exactly what Peter had claimed he did earlier. I'll be with you to the end. These other guys might abandon you, but I'm with you. And um, Peter now somewhat sheepishly responds, Yes, I love you, he says. Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Although the word he uses for love here is a lesser word than the word of absolute committed love. He's confessing the reality. He knows now, humbly, his vulnerability. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it's fascinating because Jesus uses here now the lesser word, the simpler form of love, the more humble form of love. In other words, I'll start with you there, Peter. I'll meet you right there. Do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had had to ask him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And a moment later, Jesus says to Peter, follow me, follow me. And Peter, who is prone to taking his cues in life from what other people were doing, looks over at the apostle John, whom he's always competing with, and he says to him, um, he says to Jesus, well, what about him? You know, what's your plan for him? And Jesus says these unforgettable words that I think are valuable to us today. Jesus says, what is that to you? What's going on with other people? What is that to you? You must follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was 7.51 on the morning of January the 12th, 2007, at the L'Enfant Plaza subway station in the heart of Washington, D.C. It was rush hour. And the station was rapidly filling up as people were hustling on through the station on their way to their next commitment, their next thing. When all of a sudden, a young man, 30-ish or so, came down into the station. He was wearing a, a, a set of blue jeans, a, a long-sleeved t-shirt, a Washington Nationals baseball cap, and he was carrying a case. And he set himself up alongside of one of the walls of the subway station, right there next to one of the trash cans, and he set his case down. And he opened it up, and he took out of it an old violin. And reaching into his pocket and taking out some bills and some loose change, he sort of tossed them into the case as a primer, a primer. And he put the violin to his chin. And he began to play. He played, I understand, for about 43 minutes. He played some six different selections of music. And as one observer later put it, the acoustics of the subway station proved surprisingly kind. The violin is an instrument that is said to be much like the human voice, as you may know. And in this man's hands, 
it sobbed and it sang and it laughed, ecstatic, sorrowful, importuning, adoring, flirtatious, castigating, playful, romancing, merry, triumphal, sumptuous. During that three quarters of an hour, exactly 1,097 people walked by. As the reporter tells it, each passerby had a quick choice to make, one that is very familiar to commuters in any urban area as they encounter the occasional street performer. It's part of the cityscape. The question is, do you stop and listen? Do you? Do you hurry past with a blend of guilt and irritation, aware of your cupidity, but, but annoyed by the unbidden demand on your time and maybe your wallet? Do you throw in a buck just to be polite? Does your decision change if he's really bad? What if he's really good? Do you have time for beauty? You think that the decision might have been just a wee bit easier for those commuters in that Washington, D.C. subway that day. Because you see, the 30-something fiddler standing there playing away was Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell. Three days before, 2,500 people had packed out Boston Symphony Hall, just aching for the opportunity to get close to this Grammy Award-winning, internationally acclaimed virtuoso. I mean, that's how many people were excited, willing to pay extravagant prices just to get into this man's presence. As composer John Carigliano says, Joshua Bell plays like a god. And the well-worn instrument in Bell's hands that morning was also no ordinary thing. It was a $3.5 million Stradivarius. Yeah, handcrafted in the year 1713 during the Italian master's golden period. And no one to this day, absolutely no one, no scientist, no instrument maker, nobody has ever been able to unravel the secret by which Antonius, Antonio Stradivari was able to, to blend a certain kind of varnish with a certain kind of wood and a special kind of craftsmanship to yield an instrument that produces a sound that is simply unparalleled, especially in the hands of a genius. But that's not all. <laughs> the tunes he was playing that day were not just tavern tunes. Joshua Bell had selected as his first, his first offering the Chacon from Johann Sebastian Bach's Partita No. 2 in D minor. Feel free to hum along if you know it. <laughs> it's a little complicated, isn't it? Just a little complicated. Bell calls it not just one of the greatest pieces of music ever written, but one of the greatest achievements of any man in all of human history. 
It is a spiritually powerful peace, Bell says. Emotionally powerful and structurally perfect. And each one of the six different pieces that Bell played was among the most magnificent works of music to ever grace the air of this planet with sound. And he gave it away free. So what do you think happened next? Did throngs of people gather? You know, just a trickle start and then build up as people stopped and wondered at what they were seeing. Is that what happened? Do you think people began to kind of reach into their wallets and sort of fill up the, the case till it overspilled? Can you imagine people rushing up and saying, man, this is amazing. Where are you playing next? Can I get your CD? I mean, I, I picture a little girl or a little boy who's a music student walking up and saying, oh, how did you learn to play like that? I, I want to learn to play like that. Did people follow him out of the station to see where he might play next? Well, we know. We know what happened next. Because it was filmed. And you can see it on YouTube after you go home today. The answer is that in the three quarters of an hour that Joshua Bell played, Seven people stopped. Seven people stopped to hang around and take in the performance at least for 60 seconds, at least for a minute. 27, a little better, 27 gave money, most of them on the run, for a whopping total of $32 and change. That leaves... The 1,070 people who hurried by, oblivious, many of them just three feet away, few, as you can see on the film, even turning to look, there was never a crowd, not even for a second. How does this happen? How on earth does this happen? People could be that blind or deaf to the presence of such magnificence right there in their midst. I mean, it just seems, it seems impossible. How, how could a gift like Joshua gave fail to turn all but a small, small number of people from their pursuit of whatever was coming next in their lives? How does this happen? It happened that morning in the Washington station. As I suggest to you, it happened on a much, much more important scale in another subway, in another city, long ago. We gather here this morning to remember that the Bible teaches that one day the greatest artist in all of the universe decided to come and share his gifts with ordinary people. He came from a symphony hall that is so vast and so glorious that, frankly, there is just no human parallel. I mean, all I can do is tell you that this hall 
was filled with a vast audience of beings so splendid, so radiant in their beauty, their power, and their purity, that, that the people that walk our red carpets in their finest tuxedos and their most beautiful evening gowns look like ragged paupers compared to the magnificence of the people who sit in this great audience. And yet what I want you to understand is that the people in that, the beings in that audience have a singular preoccupation. It is to listen to the one who plays on the stage, the sound of his glory. In fact, these angelic beings consider it their unique and wonderful privilege and joy to be able to simply be in the presence of the master and to and to hear him play his song of grace and truth and they're willing to do this to to to, to clap and cheer and give him an ovation for all of eternity and would pay any price to do so but he left them the bible says and he traveled down. He traveled south. And he came to a place which, you know, frankly, the only w analogy that seems fitting to me this morning about this is he traveled to a place that was sort of like the deepest, darkest, dankest subway you could imagine. It was a place where oily odors and grime and cacophonous noise reigned. And people were rushing around and elbowing each other out for position and just focused on their own thing all the time. I mean, mostly all the time. They just went on and on like this. They were caught up in making a buck. They were preoccupied with their agenda, working some plan. They stopped maybe occasionally to leer at some exposed flesh on a magazine cover or to shell out a couple of bucks at the lottery station hoping to, you know, make a fast profit. Or just walked around staring at these little screens. Or some big screen. But the artist whose name, interestingly enough, was also Joshua, Yeshua in the Hebrew, Jesus in the English. He took his place among them, wearing blue jeans, or the first century equivalent. And in parables about the kingdom of God, in acts of courage and compassion, he began to play. He began to play a song so glorious that displayed the, the beauty and power of the kingdom of God. Jesus played with absolute perfection. He played the magnificent concerto of God's redeeming work, of his relentless pursuit and love for human beings, and of his commitment to opening up a way, no matter what it cost him, so that human beings could come closer to him and find their lives and their world restored. Oh, how Jesus played. And some, the scriptures say, had ears to hear. A small handful, actually, stopped to listen. And some of them responded by, by trying to give, Zacchaeus, for example, by trying to give something of his life away in response to, to the music, 
the master played. And some even traveled with him, went wherever he went. But most people, even then, just walked on by to what is, whatever was you know, next for them. Some people actually took offense at his playing. They didn't like his music. They didn't like his suggestion that the tunes they were fond of, that they had on their pod, or they were you know, playing out to the world in one way or another. They, that, that these tunes, he suggested, were not always the most helpful ones. And they didn't like the fact that he raised that subject, that, that he said that their tunes didn't always reflect the goodness of God. They felt that his playing was, frankly, distracting people from buying their wares or it was making them look bad. And so they convinced the Roman police that, that this man was a danger to a liberal society and, and a problem for good government. And that if he was allowed to continue, there might be a whole lot of people who would be problems like this. And so they arrested him. They seized him in the Jerusalem subway, and they beat him to a bloody pulp. And then they hauled him outside of the station and they drove rusty nails right through his instrument to silence the sound. And it got very quiet for almost three days. But what the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders and the jeering crowd did not understand was that the master of this universe knows some secrets about how not just to make a life, but to remake it if that's what's needed. And so, three days later, some women who were walking through the subway in the graveyard silence of the early morn suddenly found themselves confronted with a miracle. They found themselves in the presence of Joshua himself, Jesus himself, playing a tune of love's victory over sin and death as crystal clear and beautifully as a bell. But it is what happened next that I think has the greatest import for those of us who are listening today. You see, it's one thing to hear a good story to hear a great story even, <laughs> and to find your heart stirred for a moment by the music of God. It's quite a different thing, however, to really respond to it, to take the music deeply into our souls, to let it begin to move through the whole of our being, 
to allow it to change us at some fundamental level and resolve that we will actually follow the maker of that music wherever he leads. Every single Easter, this one's no exception, every Easter the great concerto gets played again for us by somebody. You know, not always very well, but, but, but it's played. The basic melody line, it's always there. We hear the story of the one who descended from the heights into the absolute subway of this world. We hear the soaring notes of the gospel message that Jesus has paid the full price for our sins. That there's nothing we've done that can be counted against us in God's supreme court anymore. That he's made it possible for even death itself to be but a doorway into eternal life with him. We can hear the soaring notes of this glorious gospel. We can hear his call to go out now and build his kingdom in the world, make sure his music is imprinting itself upon all of creation. But the temptation is always there. At least it is for me. Not just the temptation. The tendency is always there. To to listen for a moment, admire for a moment, smile, and then just walk on by to my next thing. Sometimes I think it's because we're just too far gone, or we think we are. You know, we, we don't come in expecting anything to change. We're going to go to a service? Oh, Dad, do I have to? We don't expect anything to change. I mean, we're pretty much set in our ways. I mean, we're working it out on our own. We don't think anything can really change that dramatically for us. Our marriages are just the way they are. Our character has about as much virtue in it as it probably ever will. We see everybody else rushing on past Easter, getting on with just getting to brunch or going to school or making a living or pounding out the to-do list on their way to catching the next fast-moving train of one kind or another. We, we, we see this. And in this way, I think, we're like Peter. We're like Simon Peter when we meet him in John 21. Peter had heard the master's music once, loud and clear. He had had, he was the statistical oddity. He, he, he actually turned and listened for a while. He, he followed the music for a while. He had made a commitment that he would become not just any disciple, but one of the great disciples. He would not just be there with Jesus at you know, holiday time. He's going to be there day after day with Jesus. You can count on me, is Peter's intention. But when the heat of life came, when the pressure came on him, three times, again and again and again, when he had an opportunity to turn and embrace Jesus and declare the music, Peter just walked on by. Just on by. As if Christ was just dead. So Peter went back to being a fisherman. He just figured he was too scarred, too jaded, too battered, too bruised to really be used 
of God. But what Peter did not yet understand, and what sometimes it's hard for us to understand, is that the master knows these secrets about how not just to make, but to remake the instrument of the human body and soul. And the poet Myra Welch understand, understood this too, and, I, and she tells it so beautifully in an old poem some of you may have heard with which I'd like to close. It was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good people, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? One dollar? One dollar. Who'll make it two? Two dollars? Who'll make it three? Three dollars once. Three dollars twice. Going for three. But no. But no. From the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow. And then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet. I tell you, as sweet as the angels sing. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What now am I bid for the old violin? And he held it aloft with the bow. One thousand. One thousand. Do I hear two? Two thousand. Who'll make it three? Three thousand. Three thousand once. Going and gone, said he. And the audience cheered. But some of them cried. We just don't understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply. Why, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man, many a one with life out of tune, all battered with bourbon and gin, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he's going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd can never quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. Would you please pray with me? O master of the redeeming love, of resurrecting life, 
There is not one amongst us who does not need your touch. You know how often we have been among the masses who rush by you, who rush by you in this harried, noisy subway that sin has dug in a world you began as a garden. You have called us to an intentional journey with you and with that remarkable audience that is your church on earth and in heaven. But we confess that we have not responded to your call, at least not fully. Or maybe we turn and glance at you now and then. Maybe we've paused, thrown some bills in the case, and then just kept moving, following, following the clamoring crowd. But today, oh God, some of us, maybe even one of us, has heard the music of your gospel in a new way. We've had our hearts stirred by all that you've done for us. And we give you praise and thanks that like you did with Peter, you meet us even in the midst of our failures and you welcome us back into your fellowship and service. So if even everyone else goes somewhere else today, we hear your word. What is that to you? You must follow me. And so a few of us are going to be back here to meet you next week. We're going to be looking for your presence and listening for your music wherever we go. We're putting the battered instrument of our lives in your capable hands today. And we just wait to hear and see what you, O oh Master, are going to play in and through us next. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.